All right, well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, so why don't you open your Bible there or navigate on your device. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're looking at verses 6 through 16. And the topic, the Apostle Paul tells us that the wisdom of God is only knowable to those who have the Spirit of God. And so our title is, We've Got the Spirit, Yes, We Do. We've Got the Spirit, How About You? Right? Let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning thus far. Open up your word to us. Uh, May we hear you in a very profound way, speaking to us about your grace and love and mercy. Uh, We want to understand the text in its context, obviously, but also bring it into our own personal context and be refreshed by it. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Gandalf had a plan, keep the dark Lord Sauron distracted while a hobbit marched the one ring of power into the heart of Mordor and destroyed it in the fires from which it was forged. It was the one thing that the forces of evil would never expect. At the Council of Elrond in the film adaptation, Boromir emphasized just how incredibly foolish a plan it was. He has this great soliloquy where he says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is an evil there that does not sleep. And then making a circle with his hand, he says, the great eye is ever watchful. I had a weird dream last night that I was fighting orcs, by the way, and uh, it didn't go well for me. But anyway, against all odds and incredible evil, the plan worked. Sauron was defeated on his own turf. Tolkien, author of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, is considered to be a believer in Christ. I wonder if he might have been inspired by the foolishness of the cross when he came up with the idea of destroying the ring. The cross of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, really, seemed incredibly foolish to the world and to its rulers. They could not conceive of what it would result in their defeat on their own turf. Our text this morning says as much when in verse 8, the Apostle Paul proclaims that the cross was a mystery that none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What the world sees as foolishness is really the wisdom of God. Why can't they see it? They can't see it because it is known only to those who have received the Spirit of God, and that's where we who have received the Spirit of God come in. I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, realize that you are in the world that renounces the wisdom of God, and number two, remember that you are in the world to reveal the wisdom of God. Let's take a look, first of all, at the world that renounces God's wisdom in verses 6 through 9. Lion King is still in theaters. Director John Favreau did a great job, but you just can't improve on the voice actors in the original animated version, especially Jeremy Irons as Scar. He does a fantastic job. Once Scar is king of the Pride Lands, everything goes wrong and everything is ruined. We could call the earth the Pride Lands. The devil fell on account of his pride. He encouraged our original parents to disobey God, bringing ruin upon the earth. He is now known as the God of this world. His reign is marked with malevolence. The world is teeming with evil. Everything goes wrong and all is ruined. We're in that world, so what should we be doing to affect it? So let's take a look, starting in verse 6 of chapter 2, where Paul says, We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Mature means perfect. 
I don't think Paul was referring to those we sometimes call mature believers or mature Christians. Uh, I think he's talking to all believers of any maturity uh, because from the moment you're saved, you're positionally perfect in God's sight and he works to perfect you or to mature you by his grace. And that process is called sanctification. So Paul isn't just addressing or talking about super mature folks. He's talking about those who are perfect in God's sight, and that's any Christian. He says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. That means that believers should stick to sharing God's wisdom regardless of how foolish it seems. So uh, he'll see, we'll see that when he talks to the world, he talks God's wisdom, but also among believers, we should talk about the things of God's word and God's wisdom. Two times in verse six and in verse eight, Paul mentions the rulers of this age. Now, Bible scholars and commentators are split as to exactly who Paul might be referring to. Some, and I might say most, argue that it is the earthly rulers who signed off on Jesus' death in the first century, namely Pontius Pilate and the Jewish high priest and all those that they had authority over. Others think that the rulers of this age are supernatural beings, Satan and the angels who followed him in his fall. It's obvious, I think, that the rulers are human authorities being instigated by supernatural forces. We know that there are supernatural forces behind the authority of this world. For example, Paul calls Satan the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Gospel of John records two separate occasions when Jesus referred to Satan as the prince of this world. Ephesians 2.2 says that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And so we know that he's working through uh, individuals. Later in Ephesians, we're made aware of beings who are called principalities and powers of the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. In the Old Testament book of Daniel, we see a character who's called the Prince of Persia. We know it is a supernatural being who is antagonistic to God because he has wrestling matches with the angel Gabriel and then with Michael, the archangel. So we're not talking about the literal Prince of Persia, whoever happened to be king. We're talking about an angelic being, a malevolent angelic being, who sought to keep Gabriel from getting a, a revelation to Daniel and he was doing a good job until Michael showed up and tapped out uh, Gabriel and took over the battle. And so there's all of this in the unseen realm. The satanic forces at work in the world instigated the crucifixion of Jesus. What a bunch of losers. They didn't realize that by crucifying Jesus, they were coming to nothing. It was, in fact, God's plan, and they couldn't see it. Here's another way Paul puts it. Jesus, and I quote from Colossians, disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in his crucifixion. And so it was a victory over these powers that are behind the powers of the earth. They thought the cross was their victory when it was their total defeat. And so verse seven, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. In the New Testament, you know that the usage of the word a mystery is sometimes uh, something rather that was previously concealed, but has now been revealed. If you watch The Sixth Sense, uh, spoiler alert, uh, at the end, you figure out that Bruce Willis is actually dead. He hasn't been alive the entire movie. And so that is revealed to you. 
And so a mystery in the Bible is something that has been revealed, not no longer concealed. Since Paul earlier in 1 Corinthians said he preached the cross, that is what he means by we speak the wisdom of God. He's saying here that we reveal the victory of the cross that defeated Satan and sin and death. That's our fundamental message. And last week we talked about how it includes the entire Bible from start to finish everything leading up to the cross and everything after the cross. So when we talk about the cross, we, just, we don't mean just the crucifixion event itself. But Paul is saying we have this message, this consistent, coherent message of salvation that culminates in the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and that is what we are to speak. That is the wisdom of God. Now, it was no mystery that Jesus was going to die. He said as much himself. The mystery was the far-reaching effect of his death on the cross. It was God-ordained before the ages for our glory, Paul says. In other words, it was at the center of his eternal plan to redeem and regenerate us and to restore the ruined creation. And, and so no one could have discovered or had any idea that the Messiah would be the God-man and he would die. This was something that is just a mystery until it is revealed in the New Testament. Now we can go back in the Old Testament and see precursors of it, and we can see predictors of it. Uh, we can see Jesus actually on the cross in Psalm 22, but that's only because we have a more progressive revelation. And so verse eight, none of the rulers of this age knew, had they known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Satan was in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, looking back, having the full revelation of God in the Bible, we understand that statement as the first preaching of the gospel. The seed of the woman is Jesus Christ, the God man born of a virgin who would die on the cross and rise from the dead to totally and ultimately defeat Satan. But if you can, think about it apart from God's revelation outside of the Garden of Eden. To Satan, before the New Testament is written, it reads like a draw rather than his total downfall. They're gonna crush, they're gonna bruise each other. Uh, and some other versions use the word crush, but still, uh, it, it really doesn't give a ton of information. And even if you're super intelligent like the devil, uh, you're not thinking that, oh, this means that God is going to become a man and die on the cross. God's wisdom was too profound even for the devil to consider. If he had gotten it, he never would have incited Judas to betray Jesus. It would have been in his best interest to keep Jesus alive, to protect him, so that he couldn't die for the sins of the world. He gets it now. He can read about it in the rest of the Bible that he wasn't privy to until after the cross. He knows he will be bound in the abyss for 1,000 years at the second coming of Jesus. He knows he will for eternity suffer conscious torment in the lake of fire. He knows that he will not rule in hell as Dante portrayed, hardly. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, not as rulers, but as sufferers. A couple of thoughts before we move on from this first point. First, do you think it is merely liberal ideology that is responsible for some of the heinously immoral decisions and programs in the United States and especially California. I mean, when you think 
uh, you know, I hear all the discussions and I'm party to some of them myself when people talk about what's happening at a legislative level and what they're trying to do. It, it obviously makes us upset, but we step back and we think, how does that even make sense? There's no logical sense to it. It is completely heinous and immoral. Well, it's instigated by supernatural forces. And that's why some politicians make no sense at all. They don't make any logical sense. And they say whatever they want, whenever they want. And so we need to remember that we're not just wrestling against flesh and blood. It's not a matter of just presenting arguments. Yes, we should do everything we can in our free society to make things lean the way we want them to, uh, but uh, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against demonic powers. And Paul would say, that's why we preach the cross, because that's the thing that defeats this. And more importantly, realize that your real enemy is supernatural, and the way to defeat his last-ditch efforts in these pride lands is to speak the wisdom of God. It's to present the cross to all those who are perishing. Paul the Apostle, I don't want to be off track on this, but when he was arrested and on his way to see Caesar in Rome, every magistrate and official he stood before, he preached the gospel to. He wasn't interested in doing anything else other than preaching the cross to that individual. And so we need to do what we do, but also remember that the main thing that we're supposed to do is preach the cross because that's what will change hearts, and changed hearts is what we need in order to uh, survive. If that seems foolish to you, remember that it is the wisdom of God, and that the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. Now, secondly, remember that you're in the world to reveal this wisdom of God. That's what we've been touching on. It's embarrassing to misapply a Bible verse. One Christmas, I chose the verse for our card. It's a really, really great verse about the birth of John the Baptist. And I thought, well, I'll send it out. Nobody will know the difference. And I finally thought, well, they probably won't. So those went in the trash and we started over again. It was my daughter-in-law who pointed it out. I'd like to thank her for that. She saved me from being an idiot. The key verse in our section is one we've all probably misapplied. It's verse nine. As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The quote is from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. It's almost always quoted to refer to the wonders and the glory that await us in heaven. You guessed it, not about heaven. I know it isn't looking toward heaven because in the very next verse we read, God has revealed them to us through the Spirit. And so verse 9 is happening now, not later. This is a verse for right now because God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. One version of the Bible paraphrases verse 9, saying, No one has ever seen or heard anything like this, never so much as imagined anything quite like it, what God has arranged for those who love him. God arranged for lost, perishing sinners to be justified by his grace and declared righteous because Jesus died on the cross. Then he sanctifies us, completing the work he has begun, until we are glorified in the resurrection or by the rapture. It was an unimaginable plan, a mystery until it was revealed. And so quite simply what he's saying is, eye has not seen, ear has not heard this thing that is, we sometimes, I don't want to say take for granted, but we don't think about it in this fashion. Our salvation is what he's talking about. Uh, the fact that a fallen being uh, who totally disobeyed God 
and is a heinous hell-doomed sinner can be saved. Uh, that's a tremendous thing. And, and if you want to know what a tremendous thing it is, look at all the other world religions and philosophies and see how they're struggling to try and come to grips with it. Who are those who love God? Any and all who receive his free grace and are saved. Loving God is the response of someone he has saved. One of the main points of verse 9 is to again emphasize that God's wisdom, the cross, and the plan of salvation could not and cannot be discovered through human efforts because it was too glorious. But God, verse 10, has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit teaches all things, yes, the deep things of God. I didn't find God because he wasn't lost. I was lost and he found me. The Holy Spirit draws men and women and kids to the cross where they can be saved. The Spirit of God frees the will so a person can choose to receive or to reject Jesus. That's what's happening in our world moment by moment. Now, some folks don't like this idea of being freed to choose. They, they don't want you to have uh, any uh, response at all. Uh, a, a large portion of Reformed theology teaches that you are regenerated, you're born again, and then you believe in the gospel. Uh, even though the Bible seems to indicate that we believe and then are saved, they say, no, that's impossible. You have to be saved and then you believe. And so uh, they argue that if you have a choice at all, if the Holy Spirit frees your will and gives you a choice, then you are the decisive factor in your salvation. Theologian Roger Olson suggests the following illustration. Like all illustrations, it's not perfect, but it's uh, interesting. He says, imagine a beggar who is homeless and hungry. A generous person gives him a money order of sufficient value to rent a nice little apartment, live in it comfortably, and buy groceries. All the beggar has to do is sign the money order and cash it. He does that and settles comfortably into his new digs and eats heartily. Now he's able to go out, find a job, and the man who gave him the money has already set up several interviews for jobs the former beggar is qualified to have. Now imagine that the former beggar begins telling people that his decision to accept the money order and cash it was the decisive factor in his having this new life. First, would anyone really agree with him or would they frown and think he's an ingrate? Second, would anyone think the gift was any less a gift because the man accepted it, even if some others rejected an identical gift offered? I don't think so. And so receiving the gift of salvation because your heart has been freed to make a choice adds nothing to salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith alone. It is biblical to believe that we receive the indescribable gift, but receiving it is not a work. Paul mentions here the deep things of God. He for sure doesn't mean there are certain deep secrets that only may be known by a select elite few. That's an idea that we get from worldly philosophies and esoteric uh, religions, that there are deep things of God that only a few can know. He means that any believer, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, can plumb the deepest things about God. Uh, 10 minutes uh, as a believer or 10 years or uh, 10 decades, uh, any one of those people can plumb deep things about God if they seek him. It was a commercial some years ago for high-speed internet. Maybe you remember it. A guy came out of a room and he said he had just finished surfing the internet and they asked him what part of it and he goes, all of it. Now that's obviously impossible. The internet isn't infinite, but you can't really exhaust it. You can never exhaust learning about God. That's what Paul is talking, kind of what he's talking about. There's always more depth to explore, but all of us can explore it. It's not for an elite few. 
For example, and this is just one small example, in God's word, the same passages will yield new insight. Uh, that happens all the time when you're reading. If you're a regular reader of the Bible and you're studying, you see different things in different, uh, in the same passages. Uh, and and it, because you're growing in your knowledge as well, and the Holy Spirit is giving you do, deeper insight, and you're going through different things, uh, and, and you're able to see these things. So you, you can't exhaust God. You know, people who think, well, I read the Bible, and uh, gosh, I'm going to church, and they're teaching this again. I just went through that. Well, yeah, you know, you literally could teach the Gospel of John over and over and over and over again, and every time come away with something new and fresh, not different, not off topic, not, you know, not a new truth that no one's ever seen before, but a, a deeper understanding of the truth that is there. And so uh, that's what Paul means. And so be encouraged. You don't have to withdraw and become a monk or a nun to really get deep into God. Uh, and you don't have to even be old in the Lord. All you have to do is have the desire to get into his word. Verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. No matter how well someone else knows you, only you know you the best. The Holy Spirit knows God best because after all, he is God. God is one in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, not three gods, but one God. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal God to you because... He knows God and you don't. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. If you're in Christ Jesus, a Christian, you have firsthand information about exactly what God has done in the past, what he is doing in the present, and what he will do in the future. This is pretty fascinating, really. I mean, we don't know everything there is to know about history and different topics, but we know what we need to know, and we know uh, everything there is about the past, present, and future in terms of these broad themes. Uh, for example, you already know the future history of the planet. Uh, we talk about this all the time in terms of prophecy, but let me list it out. Sometime after the resurrection and rapture of the church, there's going to be what? A seven-year great tribulation. The rapture doesn't necessarily start it. The rapture will take place, and then sometime after that, the Antichrist will enter into a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, and that is the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. The great tribulation will end with the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. He's going to rule a 1,000-year kingdom of God on the earth after that, and we will co-rule with him. At the end of the 1,000 years, God destroys this earth and makes a new one. And then we'll go on with him for eternity, living in the new heavens and the new earth in our glorified bodies. No pain, no suffering, no tears. And so you know that. Uh, the world at large thinks we're headed for destruction. We're going to destroy ourselves with nuclear bombs or by killing the environment or global warming, whatever it is. But they think we're going to be able to get a handle on it and save ourselves. And you and I know, you know, that's not going to play out like that. You can go see all the apocalyptic movies you want and see everybody's, you know, a thing about what happened and whether it was a disease or a monkey or a, a bomb or whatever it was. But you actually know the future and it's going to unfold exactly the way God says it will because of his providence. He's going to provide for his plan. And so uh, in the meantime, I guess we're know-it-alls. 
you really are a know-it-all. You shouldn't come across as a know-it-all. That's not helpful in a discussion, but you really do know what's going to happen. Um, you know, if you're uh, talking to people who are fans of The Walking Dead, say, man, you know, when that zombie, I wonder if there could be a zombie apocalypse. You say, no, nah, no, nah, it would be kind of cool to go around killing zombies by stabbing them in the head, but uh, here's what's really going to happen. Uh, something worse is going to happen. These killer locusts are coming out of the abyss and they're going to sting you, and you're going to want to die, but you won't be able to. Uh, uh, okay, let's get back to work. <laughs> I don't know if you want to go into that kind of detail first thing, but anyway, we do know what's going to happen. Verse 13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. One of the big issues in the church at Corinth was wanting to integrate the wisdom of the world with God's wisdom. That's a problem because God's wisdom, the cross, means we go forward by grace, empowered by the indwelling spirit, whereas man's wisdom teaches we go forward by works, but offers no power to aid us. Jesus said the religious leaders of his day added heavy burdens of human effort, but wouldn't lift a finger to help. Jesus, on the other hand, said his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And so they are mutually exclusive. When we're talking about salvation and fundamental spiritual issues, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are absolutely uh, at polar opposites. There's no borrowing from one to put it into the other. It's comparing spiritual things with spiritual. He means you, you can't compare apples to oranges. The spiritual things to the wisdom of the world, two different things altogether. So, so you're, you're, you're defeated at the outset. So if you're sitting there thinking, I want to really uh, develop a program to help people uh, in terms of what we would call counseling or discipleship, uh, and you think, well, I, I've got what the Bible says, now I want what the world says. I'm going to jumble that all together and talk about the Holy Spirit and your super ego or your id. And, and it's like, you really, you can't do that because the wisdom of the world is completely exclusive from the wisdom of God. And the truth is, we just, well, it's not that we don't trust the wisdom of God. You know what I found the truth is? We don't like to be thought foolish. And so if you say to somebody, we don't need that because we have this, some kind of Jesus freak. Yeah, that, that doesn't work. And they, they want to go after these other things. And so it's many times we just don't want to seem foolish. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We started this series in 1 Corinthians here in verse 14 by talking about the spiritual man, the natural man, and the carnal man. The spiritual man is a believer in Christ. The natural man is not those who are carnal are Christians living more for the flesh. They are worldly, even though they're saved. Verse 14 is saying that without the indwelling Holy Spirit, the things of God are not understood by the unsaved, and in fact, they seem foolish to them. And this is one reason we cannot successfully counsel non-believers. They will not understand what Jesus is telling them to do, and even if they try to apply the counsel, they have no power to do it. Uh, bottom line, here, uh, I'll give you the key to all marriage counseling. This is it right here. It's a secret that I've kept to myself until right now. You're selfish, and so is your spouse. There, I did it. 
And so what you need to do is overcome that selfishness and you can do it in the power of the cross through the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know who can't do that? People in the world, because they don't want to overcome it. They want everything to be 50-50. They don't want to, nobody wants to humble themselves. Nobody wants to be the, the guy or the gal who washes the feet of all the other disciples, uh, the lowest servant. And so, uh, you know, I don't know how that applies in your situation, but my point is you can't tell somebody to quit being selfish who has only uh, their soul and their flesh to deal with. You can tell a Christian to quit being selfish because they have the Holy Spirit and they can yield to the Spirit and he can empower them, but you can't tell a worldly person to do that. They can only do it to a certain degree uh, when it's convenient for them. So our objective with the unsaved is what? preaching the cross by which the Holy Spirit frees their will so that they might see Jesus dying for them and believe. This doesn't mean we can't help people emotionally or materially. It does mean that nothing is more consequential than they get saved. Verse 15, but he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. In other words, God's wisdom about the human condition and salvation is correct. Man's wisdom is always wrong. It isn't up for debate as if the non-believer is judging between two valid alternatives. Uh, we were talking, Rhett and I, in the break about why don't we just upload the Bible into that Japanese robot? And then over time, there wouldn't be any Buddhism left. It'd be just the gospel because it's God's wisdom and it overcomes the wisdom of the world. And so that's a weird illustration, but that's the idea Paul says here. Uh, man's wisdom about salvation is always going to be wrong. Again, we're not talking about education. We're not talking about physics or biology or science or anything like that. We're talking about how people get saved and how they live a spiritual life. If your counsel to a non-believer is to be saved, they often can't see the connection between that and their circumstances. You see the connection. You're right. They're wrong. Stick to your compassionate guns. And so oftentimes people come in, they want advice on the problem but the underlying problem is that they're not saved and they can't make, they, they want to know, they want some tools, I think is what it's called now in the, in the vernacular. Give me some tools for my marriage or my finances or this or that. Uh, and, and you say, there's, there's no tools, there's a person who can come in you and come alongside you. And they say, no, I need to deal with this. I, I don't want to go to church. You know, I, I don't want to get, get spiritual. Uh, all we can do is preach the gospel. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. The natural man does try to instruct God. Every religion, every philosophy, every psychology is some man's answer to that phone call. Tell him I'm busy, I'll get with him afterwards. Those are attempts to ignore the clear revelation of God and in its place propose an alternate theory of how to deal with the problem of the heart. And so the Christian comes and says, this is the plan. It started in the Garden of Eden. It'll end in eternity. It's the cross of Jesus Christ right there in the middle of history. And somebody says, no, I don't like that. Uh, I think I'll be a Buddhist. I think I'll be a Taoist. I think I'll be a Hindu. I think I'll be a Muslim. I want to work my way to heaven and uh, this makes more sense to me. Uh, it's wrong. Every one of them suggests works, human effort by which you improve or perfect yourself. God says you can't work your way to heaven and you can't get there by deeds. And I think that's obvious if we're honest. Heaven has to be a place of absolute holiness and perfection. That l leaves you out. I mean, you know, uh, none of us, I mean, we're born with a sin nature. 
We see it in babies, we sin. Uh, there's a problem or else we wouldn't be seeking these other answers. We have to be declared righteous by a holy God. Uh, we can't earn it for ourselves. We, any believer, have the mind of Christ. We can both understand God's plan and live by it. Mind of Christ would have a lot of applications. One is your overall worldview. We see the world that Jesus sees, uh, the way he saw it and the way he sees it. But another application is that we can focus on the cross and its implications. Jesus was laser-focused on the cross. He spoke of it often. He understood it was his primary mission. He was born to die in our place for our sins. To accomplish it, he humbled himself to live a a lowly servant life, ultimately being obedient to the death of the cross. And so the cross of Jesus is a way of living as though you were dead to yourself and alive to God. So are you dead to yourself? Or would Miracle Max say that you were only mostly dead? I think a lot of Christians, myself included, were mostly dead. And I don't think that's tremendously pejorative. I mean, we're all a work in progress. That means all of us have areas of our life that God is still showing us and working on to make us more like his son. And so I think we are mostly dead, you know, because we're doing Christian things and praying and coming to church and, you know, sharing our faith when possible and all that. But there's still areas of our life. And so we're mostly dead. You've probably heard it said that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The best commentary I can offer on this topic is to read a section from the book of Colossians. It starts by reminding you to die to yourself and that it encourages you how to live. So let me read it to you from Colossians 3. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray.